Welcome to Climate Optimists. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd DeShida. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. This week, we'll be diving into the world of meat and its impact on climate. Meat. (laughs) Some might ask, why is it relevant? The reality is our food production generates roughly a third of global carbon emissions. That's bananas. Roughly 60% of those emissions are a result of animal-based foods like meat and dairy. And on top of that, meat production is expected to grow 50% between 2013 and 2050. We got to make that number go the other way. We do. I mean, that's, that's what we're going to get into here. Sweet. Well, before we do, we should talk about this week's reason for hope, which is that EV sales are up big in 2021. From January to September, U.S. EV sales are up 83%. Wow. Despite production delays that you may have heard about. There's supply chain issues? I had no idea. Yeah, it's been, it's been crazy. Weird. It's like a pandemic's been going on. Yeah, you know, I just I just actually heard about a, a story about the global supply chain and all these big ships and all the containers, and they had all the containers at one end of the world, and now they're just shipping containers around because you can actually make money, I think, shipping containers to different places because they don't have any. I was astonished by how big of a mess it was. But analysts expect 2022 to even be a bigger year for EV sales, so that's good. In the U.S., Tesla is the big one, and they're responsible for 70%, which I didn't know that. I, I see a lot of them around, but I didn't realize they had that much of the market pegged. Yeah, Elon's going to be working hard to hold on to that. We'll see if he can. Yeah, right. Incentives are playing a big role. And speaking of incentives, there's $12,500 worth of tax credit in Biden's Build Back Better bill. You want to say that again? Build, Biden's Build Back Better bill. <laughs> That's really exciting, though. It is. It is. It's awesome. And it'll be fun to see how that, you know, plays out in 2022, assuming they can get supply chain issues fixed by then. Exactly. By the way, you sound terrible. I don't know. My voice is messed up. A lot of people think I have COVID, but I don't think I do. Your closet cigarette habit sneaking up on you? I don't know what happened. (laughs) My throat's always a little messed up, I feel like, all the time because because of allergies. And so I just really didn't think anything of it. And all of a sudden, I just, my voice got thrashed so i don't know it's not like marlboro allergies or newports (laughs) i don't think so well jumping in to kick things off we should talk about where emissions from meat production come from yeah if you look at meat emissions in kind of different buckets they're emissions directly from the animals there's a term called enteric fermentation which is basically we think of as cows or sheep or goats belching and that emits methane and then there are emissions from the manure associated with the livestock and that's a mixture of of methane and nitrous oxide Hmm. and then we have an indirect bucket which is really about growing all the food to feed those animals which has both emissions associated with the fertilizer application in the form of nitrous oxide as well as emissions from operating all the agricultural equipment, you know, burning your diesel to to power your tractor. Yeah. But those are the two big buckets. So the methane is actually from belching. Correct. Not from farting, as they always make these jokes about. Correct. I see. The other important thing to call out is that cattle, sheep, and goats all have four stomachs. The extra stomachs mean they generate substantially more methane from belching, than, say, a pig or chicken, which has just one stomach. Right. 
That's why you always see them chewing because, you know, they brought that grass back up. They're working it over again. Right. So in addition to looking at where the emissions come from, we talk about totals, livestock, which falls under agricultural emissions when we're talking globally, accounts for about 14.5% of global emissions, which is pretty huge. That is huge. Beef is about 41% of that. Dairy, about 20%. Pork, 9%. And, and chicken for meat and for eggs, about 8%. Huh. And we should call out the fact that you know methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas, but it also breaks down more quickly. And so mm. one of kind of the controversies around emissions tracking with livestock is this debate about how to treat methane. Because while methane might break down in the period of about 10 years... CO2 in the atmosphere can be up there for hundreds and thousands of years. I think the important thing to keep in mind, though, is that if we're continuing to emit methane at the rate it breaks up, it sort of doesn't matter because you're continuing to warm the planet because of the methane that's up there. So if we stopped emitting methane tomorrow, it would the warming potential of that would disappear fairly quickly, where carbon dioxide, it would take a lot longer. That's an interesting point. And it looks like the disparity here between beef and the other, the other animals is pretty vast. And the reason for that is really about the efficiency of these animals in processing their food and turning it into meat. Mm-hmm. So why are emissions from producing meat so much higher than plant-based foods? Eating higher on the food chain requires more energy, and livestock, especially cattle, are inefficient at converting plant protein into meat protein. So there's a number of analyses that have been done looking at the emissions of different types of meat versus plants and accounting for methane in different ways. But regardless of which analysis you see, beef is far and away the least efficient. That is, it generates the most emissions. One of the studies that we looked at indicates that to get a kilogram of beef, you produce about 71 kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions. And about half of that is associated with the methane that comes from the belching and the manure. You look at pork, it drops from 71 down to 12 kilograms wow. of greenhouse gases per kilogram of, of meat. Chicken is even better than that at 10 kilograms of greenhouse gases per, per kilogram of, of meat. Cheese, like you know, which falls as a, a dairy product, obviously. Yeah. Unfortunately for the cheese lovers, cheese is pretty bad as well. It's about 24 kilograms of greenhouse gases per kilogram of cheese albeit a kilogram of cheese is a lot of cheese. Yeah, right. And then when you look at protein sources that come from plants, you take beans, for instance, it's only two kilograms of greenhouse gases per kilogram of beans. And peas is even lower than that at one, roughly one kilogram of greenhouse gases per kilogram of peas produced. Wow. So pretty nominal. Yeah, that's huge differences. That's amazing. It really is. I mean, if we looked at it in the context of sort of like fuel economy, mm-hmm. beans would be like driving, I don't know, your electric vehicle at like 100 miles per gallon. Right. Chicken would be like driving a an old pickup truck that gets about 10 miles per gallon. And beef would be the equivalent of driving something that gets 1.4 miles per gallon. I don't even know what that is. Maybe that's a tank. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, it's bad. A vast differences. It really is. And I knew coming into this that, you know, that was one of the contributors was the difference in efficiencies, but I don't mm-hmm. think I fully appreciated how much different 
So how is the cattle industry responding to assertions about the impact of beef? You know, it's interesting you'd ask that. They, the industry has hired, has contracted with a few professors to do some research on the topic. A guy from UC Davis and another one from Texas A&M. And maybe not surprisingly, their analyses paint a much uh, rosier picture. Are you, you're not saying these guys are biased, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just because somebody pays for the research doesn't mean the research being done is wrong. Well, sure. But in this case, their assertions are very different than what's coming from the majority of studies performed by climate scientists. Right. It feels a little bit like those oil industry scientists who get paid to do research about the impact of climate change and miraculously find totally different conclusions than (laughs) the other 99% of climate scientists out there. Right. Yeah, I know there's there's argument that, that some of the grassland that cattle graze on offset emissions. And I know that grassland can be kind of a car, act as a carbon sink, but there's also a lot of the scientists feel that, that these some of these grasslands are kind of maxed out. In other words, they've already sort of soaked up as much as they can. Yeah, exactly. There is a UN assessment from 2013 that indicates that there are some grazing practices that could be adjusted and, you know, adding additional legumes, things like clover to grassland could result in some improvements. In other words, you have some ranchers today who are managing their grasses really well. And those are some, some of the ones where you're probably maximizing the carbon sink potential. Mm-hmm. And this UN analysis indicates that there are indeed places where those grasslands aren't being managed to their potential. But even implementing those measures the UN assessment indicates that at best you're looking at an 8% reduction in livestock emissions. So right. while it's fair to say that improving the way grazing is done could have an improvement, it's not even close to enough to offset the emissions that livestock are generating. Right. And then when you look at areas like the Amazon, it's particularly problematic because they're tearing down rainforest in many cases to create more. Yeah ground for cattle and a, and a you know acre of rainforest can sequester substantially more emissions than than an acre of grass. Yeah, for sure. That makes total sense. I think one of the questions that does come up though, speaking of grass, is this idea of grass-fed beef being better than grain-fed beef. And I know you did a little bit of research on this. Yeah, I mean, I think people probably do that for various reasons, but uh, you know, and I think people don't like the idea of feedlots, and so I think gra- this grass-fed right. idea, you know, kind of hits some some heart notes or whatever in that way, and that might be true, but when it comes to the topic of climate change, it, the studies have shown that there's really no difference, and the, one of the main reasons is that cattle actually emit more methane w- when they're eating grass. Interesting. Which is very interesting, and another major factor is that it takes them longer to get to market weight when they're eating grass, so they're just living long, they have to live a longer life, and so they're just around longer emitting methane. And they typically don't weigh in as high either, and so it takes more animals, right, to produce the same amount of beef that you would in a feedlot situation. Uh, and, you know, also the U.S. only has, you know, enough grassland to support about 27% of the current production we crank out, so... Even if you wanted to go that direction, yeah, there isn't enough. It's it's not going to... And I think you would just be kind of trading one problem for another. Right. You know, really. I mean, I think the moral of it is that, you know, we just need less less beef 
either way, no matter how they're fed, right? Uh, we just need to somehow reduce consumption. I don't have anything against beef. I mean, I, I love a ribeye steak as much <laughs> as anybody or more than most. And I have a lot of family who've been in the beef industry. But, you know, the facts are facts. And it's not that I'm saying you have to cut beef out of people's lives entirely. It's just maybe the frequency of the consumption. So maybe you're having it on more of a special occasion basis as opposed to every yeah. night on, on the dinner table. Yeah, I think so. I, th- I mean, I think that's the way to look at it. So I guess this all kind of leads to, well, what are the solutions to mitigating the emissions associated with, with livestock worldwide? And to your point, first and foremost is eating more plant-based. And it feels like we've got room to do that, at least here in the U.S., where we consume about 58 pounds of beef per year, and the global average is about a quarter of that. Wow. Yeah. So it's not like we don't have room to, to cut our consumption, and that's just beef. If you start looking at meat and its plant-based alternative, it's pretty dramatic, the difference between the two. So it'll take like an Impossible Burger mm-hmm. versus a beef hamburger, and the Impossible Burger cuts your greenhouse gases by roughly 90%. Wow. Which is massive. Yeah. If you look at like the original chick patties, which are sort of a chicken substitute, it's not as dramatic, but it still cuts your emissions 36%. Right. Because chicken is is more efficient than Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, they just start out so much more efficient. And it's worth calling out when we're talking about eating more plant-based that there are other advantages as well. When you mentioned the fact that we only have rangeland to support 27% of our current beef production in the U.S. You look at animal agriculture as a whole, it's 77% of the agricultural land, but it only produces 17% of our food supply. Wow. So eating less meat and more plant-based protein, we free up a ton of additional land to sequester carbon. For sure. And we also avoid deforestation in places like South America. The other big savings, as you can imagine, is water. Moving to plant-based, you save anywhere from 72 to 99% in terms of water consumption compared to conventional meat. Wow. There's also the benefit of less aquatic pollution caused by, you know, fertilizer and manure. And that ranges in the order of, you know, 51 to 91% moving to plant-based. Hmm. So the other big potential area of improvement when we talk about cutting our livestock emissions is reducing our food waste. I think many folks know that there's a lot of food waste out there. I didn't realize that only two-thirds of the food we produce gets to the dinner table. So we're wasting a third of our food globally. And that accounts for about 8 to 10% of global emissions, the bulk of which being not that we're growing food that we just throw away, but the fact that that food that is thrown away decomposes and creates methane, which uh, we know is much more potent as a greenhouse gas. Interesting. That's crazy. I wouldn't have thought that it would be that high. Yeah, it was much higher than I suspected as well. And so when you're talking about reduction of emissions associated with meat production, it represents a huge potential upside. There's other opportunities to reduce emissions associated with meat production. Things like more precise fertilizer use. So you're not putting down fertilizer you don't need that releases nitrogen oxide. There's also additives that you can add to livestock feed that help cut back on the amount of methane that they produce. So there's a lot of, you know, arrows in the quiver when it comes to cutting emissions 
associated with meat, but but the big two are really eating plant based or eating more plant based and reducing food waste. Cool. So I think most folks are familiar with sort of the typical plant based alternatives to meat, but we should probably answer the question of well, what's actually in most plant based alternatives? Yeah, you know, I was really fascinated when I started digging into this because I didn't realize how kind of complex this plant-based meat idea is. And I always was kind of taken aback by, what are you talking about, plant-based meat? Like, there's plants and then there's meat. <laughs> right. Right? And I'm like, what are you, are you just like trying to, is this some, some kind of marketing gimmick or what? But it really is kind of like plant meat <laughs> that they're making here because... If you look at it, you know, animal meat is made up of protein, fat, vitamins, minerals, and water. And, you know, even though plants don't have muscles like animals do, they contain protein, fat, vitamins, mineral, and water. Minerals and water, right? And so, basically, what they're trying to do is they're taking the similarities out of the plants and trying to basically mimic the the meat in animals, and they're doing this in very complex ways. Like I used to think, oh, what are they, you know, they're just like taking some soybeans and throwing in some carrots and some potatoes and they grind it all up and throw some cumin in there and they're saying, this is a burger. Right. But it's not really like that at all. So they're basically mimicking, they call it the spatial arrangements of proteins that are in muscle, muscle tissue. And certain types of plants kind of fill these gaps and, and fill these, these roles better than others. And then they manipulate all this stuff like mechanically, chemically, or biologically. Interesting. And they call it like biomimicking, like the Impossible Burger. Have you ever had the Impossible Whopper at Burger King? You know, I don't go to Burger King much these days, so I haven't sampled that particular delicacy they offer on their menu. Well, but, I but maybe have. I should. <laughs> and it's pretty good. So what they do is they take the protein from soy and potatoes, and they use the fat from coconut and sunflower oils to make it like sizzle on the grill, right? And they use binders and food starch. But, and they use the, the one of the key ingredients is this flavor called heme. Is it heme? Oof. Whatever it is, it's in meat, but it's also in plants. And so what they did is they extracted the DNA from the roots of soy plants, and they've inserted that into genetically engineered yeast. What? and fermented that yeast, and then the end result is a byproduct that helps these burgers taste like beef. Isn't that crazy? Wow. They've done all this like fungal fermentation stuff, and I thought, man, that sounds appetizing. <laughs> but it works, and I'll tell you what, if you don't think that sounds appetizing and a real burger does, go into a butcher shop and sit there and watch them cut that thing up and see how you think about it after that too. So, you know, it does sound weird that these are like lab burgers, right? But yeah, to your point, go spend time at a slaughterhouse and tell me how appetizing that looks when, you know, we're talking about burgers. Yeah. But it just has astonished me how how high tech some of this stuff really is. You know, they're even going farther than that. They're doing cultivated meat, which is also called cultured meat. And it's like genuine animal meat that's produced by cultivating animal cells directly. Interesting. I guess a Dutch scientist named Mark Post unveiled the first cultivated meat burger on live television in 2013. Wow. And basically they, they put him in like, they put these cells in these cultivators and they, it's like a lab burger, man. Meat on a stick. Yeah. It's, uh, 
it's really cool stuff. But I mean, the potential of all this stuff is really high to eliminate a lot of the carbon and, and all those methane impacts and all that stuff that meat has. And, you know, I think from our, from what we looked at here, I think beef really should be the focus of what they're doing, right? Because that's where you're going to get the biggest impacts. Right. And like I said, it, I don't expect them to recreate a, a ribeye here anytime soon. There's texture and all kinds of things that are going to be difficult. It's obvious that your kind of ground meat, minced meats, it's all easier to imitate that stuff. Right. But if you could just replace ground beef and burgers and things like that, that would be a huge impact if you could get that to a point. And then believe me, that Impossible Burger is pretty good. They're pretty close. I think there's some challenges. You know, I think there needs to be a lot more R&D. And to do all this stuff with the genetics, it's going to take a lot of time to get all this stuff kind of mapped out that they need to do. Well, I mean, to your point, right? I mean, this is, the process is so much more complex. I mean, we're, yeah. we're talking way beyond mom's homemade veggie burger here. Yeah, this isn't a bean patty. Right. Right. I think there's a lot of crop science that needs to be done. You know, a lot of crops have been bred over time to serve different functions. And protein hasn't necessarily been high. You know, so there's going to be a lot of, I think, research and stuff that needs to be done and a study and investment in the different types of strains of crops that we're going to need to make this kind of meat substitute thing happen. And that's really about lowering the price, I assume, because you've got, you know, things like peas, beans, and soybeans that all have a lot of protein in them, but may not be, they weren't obviously bred with the idea that they're going to be turned into a, you know, a Whopper at at BK. Yeah, that you're going to pull something out of them to serve this function in an impossible meat patty, right? So it's really, it's been really an eye-opening experience to look into this and see what what they're doing here. Like I said, it's going to need more R&D and investment. I think there's, you know, there's cultural challenges about this, right? About the idea of fake meat. Right. I think there's a lot of challenges, obviously, from the livestock industry, because I think they see competition here. I don't know if you remember a while back when there was controversy about what was con- what could be considered meat. Right, labeling. That was a big uh, controversy. They didn't want these meat substitutes to be able to call themselves meat. And I think, obviously, the meat substitute people did because that's really what they're trying to do. And when you look at it in this way, you can understand that, right? You wouldn't want to sell an Impossible Burger patty in the vegetable section. I mean, it just wouldn't make it wouldn't make a ton of sense. No, and it it seems like, in some ways, you know, it's no different than any other industry that undergoes disruption. And most of the time, that disruption results in something positive for the end consumers. And you know, I can't imagine that there's clearly you know jobs to be had when you're talking about getting these recipes right, growing all the ingredients that need to go into these meat substitutes, cultivating meat. So, you know, again, to your point earlier, I don't, I don't think it's constructed to, you know, to demonize the livestock industry because they've served, you know, an important purpose, right? Sure. It's just that as we look at climate change and this tipping point that we're headed towards, meat production is a is a big part of that. And so if we can reduce our meat consumption, that's a beneficial thing. I think there's also, you know, a a piece of this where how you would make a transition. Obviously there's portions of agriculture that would kind of have to readjust to be able to be growing the kind of crops to support the materials that you're going to need to, to make these meat substitutes. Right. And 
who knows how that could kind of infect, not infect, but affect, you know, the agriculture as a whole and kind of the economy of agriculture. So I think there's obviously some, some thinking and some planning to be done. But it does seem that there's huge potential here to have a big effect on on climate if you could if you could replace a, a certain portion of the meat industry you know with this with this technology you know i feel like your voice started out bad over this and now my voice is starting to go too you've been infected <laughs> psychosomatic it could just be talking too much probably no i stepping back and looking at all of this i th- i think the other thing that we can't lose sight of is even if we didn't have climate change on the table we have a growing world population that we need to feed and there are already folks going hungry. And when you think about the fact that almost 80% of our agricultural land is tied up growing meat, the only way we're going to be able to feed people into the future is if we move toward plant-based alternatives. Yeah. And, and the health, you know, benefits are probably going to be pretty high too. Yeah. And, and also helps tackle some of the water scarcity issues that we're talking about. Well, there's a lot of controversy about, you know, antibiotics and feedlot situations, right? Also just kind of animal care, you know? I mean, everybody's probably seen these documentaries about these large pig operations and chickens and they got them stacked in. And, you know, if you just had to have less of these animals, I'm sure their quality of their, you know, the quality of life and stuff that they could have would be a lot better. Yeah, and to your point, we talk about antibiotics. There's also the benefit of being able to save antibiotics for, you know, helping people when they're sick, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, using them on animals means that we're reducing the potential efficacy of these drugs that we rely on for our survival. And if you move to a world where you're plant-based or, to your point, the densities are much smaller and you don't need the antibiotics, then all of a sudden you get rid of that risk that's there as well. Right, definitely. So I think this all leads to the question we always ask, what should we be doing? And to some degree, I guess we've answered that. Yeah, I mean, I would like to set a goal for myself to basically consume less meat overall, but especially to consume plant-based alternatives. And, you know, if if we all did that, obviously demand's going to go up and it's just going to help this whole situation. It's going to provide funding for them to, for more R&D and push this market. And I think I was skeptical before going into this episode, but I really think that this stuff could be a huge solution to some of these problems. And I think it's pretty good. You know, like I said, that impossible Whopper is pretty good. (laughs) And so I think you just have to kind of try and I think it'll take off. I think I think people will realize that they that they like it. And I think we just have to make a conscious effort to do it. Well, and to your point, the power of consumer choice, right? If you're spending money on these things, it's going to drive that demand and bring bring price down, which is going to help overall. And the fact is, some of these taste good as they are, and things are only going to get better with time. Right. So setting a goal around exploring some of these plant-based alternatives and how much meat you want to eat in a week could be a benefit. I think the other opportunity is helping organizations that are helping advocate for this transition to plant-based proteins or cultivated proteins. And the Good Food Institute is an international nonprofit that's really on the cutting edge of that. They've done a ton of great research on the topic and are also helping advocate for 
those research dollars that you were talking about that, that are really needed to kind of take this to the next level. So if you're looking for an organization to donate to to make a difference, consider a donation to the Good Food Institute. Yeah, and go to their site. They've got great information on there about all this stuff. It'll, it'll blow your mind. Yeah, I was. I thought I knew a thing or two about plant-based proteins, but I realized oh, <laughs> man. my knowledge was pretty limited. It's crazy. It's really cool. Well, I think that's a wrap. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Come join us again next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.